All right. Well, we get to jump back into uh, study of God's Word, the Gospel of John. If you'd like to turn to John chapter 5, I'd take a few moments to recap because it's been quite a few weeks since we've been there. We've had a couple of guest speakers. You guys might have remembered those guys that came by. Steve Vickery, Mike Rodriguez. So they were here the last few weeks. So it's been, I guess, three Sundays since we've been in John. Um, so it's uh, going to take a little bit to kind of get us up to speed because what takes place in, in, in John chapter 5, at least the rest of this, is one big discourse by Jesus. Um, and it all is based upon the previous uh, events that have happened at the beginning of chapter 5. So we need to review that. Uh, we looked at chapter 5, verses 1 through uh, 16 last time we were in here. And rather than read through all that, I'll just kind of recap uh, for you. Um, but J- John 5, what you need to get down is this, that it's a major turning point in the life and ministry of, of Jesus, because it's at this point, verse 16 really highlights it, that he really becomes enemies of the Jews. Look at this. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. What had happened? Well, well, well we were introduced to a man uh, that was uh, an invalid of some kind. He wasn't able to, to walk. He was unable to, uh, to get any help. Um, believed that he could be healed by a, a pool. Uh, so many sick people gathered by this, this pool. And for 38 years, he sat there with no opportunity to get healed, no one to help him into the pool. And uh, the opportunity to get healed never came. But Jesus comes along, picks him out of the entire bunch, and gives him these three commands. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. You remember all that? And the key there we looked at was for him to take up his bed. Because, if you recall, it was the Sabbath. And it was uh, prohibited for you to carry something on the Sabbath, at least out in public, from one uh, domain to another. You could carry something in your own domain from one room to another. But if you were to carry something in public... That constituted working, and now you were in violation of the Sabbath. So this man, healed after 38 years of not being able to walk, carrying his bed, is caught by the religious authorities and question, who told you to carry your bed? And he says, someone else told me to carry my bed. They said, well, yeah, who, who was that guy? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know who it was. So later, Jesus finds the man in the temple and tells him to, if you recall, uh, go and sin no more. Uh, kind of kind of hinting at the fact that this man's lifestyle and his life of sin and rejection uh, is what led to his sickness, his illness in, to begin with. And so the man has a choice to follow Jesus, the man who had healed him, or to side with the religious authorities. And if you recall, he goes to the authorities and says, I know who the guy was. His name is Jesus. That's the man right there. And he turns him in. He turns him in. And the focus was the, focus was the stranglehold the religious authorities had on the people. Remember, they, they were the purveyors of this false religion, and they, they held people in that grip of fear. People feared it. We went through John all the way to the end, if you recall, and looked at um, how the people feared the Jews, the religious leaders, and therefore kept their mouths quiet. They wouldn't go against them. And so this man, in fear of being um, persecuted because he had violated the Sabbath, uh, throws Jesus under the bus for lack of a better term, um, turns him in. Now, to be perfectly clear here, Jesus did not violate the Sabbath, did he? He didn't violate the Sabbath. He had violated the rabbinic additions to the Sabbath, right? 
the rabbis had added, if you recall, 39 activities kind of broken down into three groups that you could not do on the Sabbath. They're just ridiculous. All these things that would constitute work. That, in their eyes, is what he had uh, violated. So here, beginning of verse 17, going all the way to the end of the chapter to verse 47, Jesus is defending his, his actions, but not in a manner that you might expect. He doesn't try to explain that there is a distinction between God's law and man's tradition. You would think that'd be one way to go. Well, let me explain to you where you've gone wrong on the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't even bother going there. Instead, he makes a far more, or takes a far more radical approach and declares himself to be God. Now, this has been an area of theological debate and discussion for years. Has Jesus actually declared himself to be God? Are the words in the Bible Jesus saying, I am God? Scholars and skeptics have given all kinds of different ideas as to who they believe Jesus is because they believe uh, Jesus doesn't declare himself uh, to be God. And so all through um, uh, the, the, the passage here that we've looked at, and even going through our survey of John three weeks ago, they had all kinds of ideas as to who Jesus was. Do you remember some of the things they were saying? Well, he's one that was born illegitimately, right? He was born of fornication. He was a, a demon-possessed Samaritan was one of the accusations, right? Not only demon-possessed, but he's a Samaritan who's demon-possessed. He's a, a sinner because he would break the Sabbath. Uh, he's called a demon-possessed madman, a blasphemer, a criminal, and even at the end of John, uh, a political threat. So all of these things Jesus has been uh, put forward as to the people. Oh, this is a guy you want to stay uh, away from. And over the years, our world has done the same thing. We've had theological skeptics and liberals intent on denying the deity of Jesus, presenting all kinds of Jesuses to us. We've heard him as a human moral teacher, just a good man, teaching a good moral teaching. He's been presented as a, a crusading uh, sort of sociopolitical revolutionary, a cynical Jewish, Jewish uh, sage, and even a countercultural hero of rock musicals like Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar, right? Interestingly, Jesus' own testimony is seldom considered. People have all kinds of ideas as who Jesus is, but who does Jesus say he is? Why don't we consider his testimony? Today, you're going to hear it. Jesus gives his own testimony. Did Jesus, in fact, claim to be God incarnate in human flesh, or were those claims fabricated by his followers? That's what we have to determine today. Because to be honest, um, don't listen to what I say. I could be spoon-feeding you a, a false teaching as well. Many of the cults don't believe in the deity of Jesus based upon the false teaching of their religious authorities, right? Those in charge. But this biblical account, I believe, leaves no doubt about who Jesus declared himself to be. It's very clear. Beginning here in chapter 5, Jesus is in defense of his actions, and in doing so, he makes the most startling claim in all of human history. There's five things I'm going to point out today. Uh, you don't have to write them right now because I'll point them out as we go, but he's going to make five claims to absolute equality with God. First, he's going to claim that he is equal with the Father in his person. In his person. He's going to claim he's equal in his works, 
He is equal in his power and sovereignty. He is equal in his judgment, and he is equal in the, the honor due him. That's what we're going to see today. But let's read through the passage, starting in chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. We're just going to take it to verse 24 today because there's just a lot here. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the truth that lies within these pages. The truth as to the identity of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would show us today that it would be crystal clear that by no fabrication of my own, uh, no uh, mincing of my words, but just clearly from your word, who is Jesus? Would you show us today, God, that we might grow more and more in love with him today? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, first, um, I, I think you'll see this, that Jesus is going to make a claim here that he is equal to God in his person. He's equal to God in his person. Now, the Jews have just said in verse 16, at least John has just pointed out, that the Jews persecuted Jesus or sought to persecute him and sought to kill him because he had done these things, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. What are these things? What has Jesus done? Did Jesus pick up a mat and carry it? Did he carry the bed? No, the man carried the bed. But the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus because he had done these things things. Well, what was it that Jesus did on the Sabbath? He healed a man. So keep this in mind. They're angry because a man broke the Sabbath by carrying his bed, and now they're more angry at Jesus because he's healed someone on the Sabbath. He's worked on the Sabbath. But somehow they're, they're blind to the incredible miracle of a man healed from a 38-year malady, and they only see the breaking of the Sabbath. So Jesus here is defending uh, not the fact that he told the man to pick up his bed and walk. He's defending the fact that he healed him. That should be clear. That's what he's doing. So the man, if you recall, as I re re recapped to you, the man appealed to a higher authority. He went to the Jews, didn't he? He went to a higher authority. Jesus, who does he have to appeal to? Who is a higher authority for Jesus' appeal to. They're coming to attack him. They want to kill him. Who can Jesus go to? There's no one. There isn't anyone to go to. So here's his defense in verse 17. 
My father has been working until now, and I have been working. My father's been working, and I have been working. Now, what we're talking about, again, is the breaking of the Sabbath because of Jesus' works, the healing work. Let me ask you something about the Sabbath. Was the Sabbath created for God's benefit or man's? You can say, what do you think? Man's benefit, man's benefit. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, we're told this. This is Jesus' words. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the man. It's for you. It's for the creation, not for the creator. We go back to where the Sabbath began in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. You'll see it here. This is what it says. On the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Now, there's two key words. And I underlined them there for you. They are ended and rested. Those are the key words. The word ended is kala, and it means complete. It just means complete. He completed his work. It's finished. It's done. There's no more work to do because the work is done. And because the work is done, he rested. Shabbat means he ceased from working. Okay? So because there's no more work to do, he's done working, he stopped working. <laughs> Pretty clear, right? That's what he did. So God has merely what he's done. He's completed his work in six days. The work that he had to do was what? Creating the universe, right? He created everything. And it took only those six days. And because it was completed in six days, he ceased to work on the seventh. God did not rest on the seventh because he was tired or he received some benefit. God rested, ceased because he was done. That should be clear. And if you've ever had any misconception about that, I hope that gets it out now. God does not get tired. <laughs> Isaiah 40, 28 tells us that the creator of the ends of the earth neither faints nor is weary. He does not get tired. But verse 3 of Genesis gives us another two verbs that distinguishes that seventh day, that Sabbath day, from the other sixth. This is why it's important. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. That day is a special day because God's blessing goes with that day. He has sanctified it. He has set it apart there are seven days in our week, and we could look at all those seven days as the same. Uh, human beings, we will work, we will work, boy, we will work all those, right? You, you just put us at it, we will not cease to work. We will continue to work, even if there's no work to do. We'll just keep working. And particularly if you're an American, by the way, maybe not so much here, but if you're American, you will work, and you will work, and you will work. If there wasn't that seventh day set apart to give you a little rest, we, we'd be dead, <laughs> okay? We'd work ourselves to the grave, God has given that benefit. He sanctified that day. He's blessed it. And, and then he gave it to us as an example that we would just work six days and we would take one day to cease working, to stop working. It was for man's benefit. And so what God did was set a divine example for man just to rest from his normal work day one day out of, out of each week. Now, let me ask you another question. Does God observe the Sabbath? You could ask it in the broad sense. Does God observe his commands? And off the top of your head, you would go, oh, yeah. And you could go, okay, well, then does he observe the Sabbath? Does he observe the Sabbath? Meaning, does he stop working every time Saturday night rolls around? Boy, you better hope that ain't true. <laughs> because if God stops working every time Saturday night rolls around, we're all in big trouble. 
Because God holds the universe together. If he stopped doing that, no more universe. Not a problem for God. But if he took a break from that, we'd be in big trouble. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Just turn there real quick. In Colossians chapter 1, we're, we're told this about Jesus, verses 15 to 17. Now, this is because Jesus is God. We're going to get to that here. But, but Paul is plainly speaking about Jesus in this passage. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. All things hold together because of Jesus. All things hold together. God is always at work. Jesus is always at work. God's work never ceases. Jesus' work never ceases. Are you starting to get the picture of what Jesus is saying here? My father has never stopped working. And so I don't stop working. I keep working. God keeps working. Does God show things like mercy and do good on the Sabbath? Of course. Of course you've experienced his goodness. Of of course you've experienced his mercy on the Sabbath. Of course he does that. Likewise, so does Jesus. That's what he had done. He had shown mercy and compassion to a man who needed healing. He expressed and demonstrated God's goodness there. So Jesus is saying that since the Sabbath's restrictions don't apply to God, they don't apply to him either. God does not stop working. And because God doesn't stop working, I don't stop working. The one who created the Sabbath is the one that has authority over it. He's the one that determines its purpose. He's the one that determines its use and its uh, limitations. That is what Jesus is saying. My father's been working until now, and so I've been working. Now, if that wasn't clear enough for you, the Jews sure got the picture. Because look at verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Their reaction to Jesus' statement makes his claim to deity pretty clear. Now, we have to back up a bit. The extreme nature of their reaction, it's a a bit extreme, right? Oh, now they want to kill him even more. In our minds, we're like, why do I want to kill him? That's pretty extreme, right? Guy says he's, he's equal to God, and now we got to kill you. That's a pretty extreme jump, right? I've met people who think they are God, who think they are Jesus, who think they are John the Baptist. I haven't wanted to kill them, all right? So in our minds, like, that's an extreme jump. But for you to understand that, you have to get back into the Jewish mentality. You need to back up a bit because the Jews went to captivity for 70 years for what? Idolatry. Idol worship worship of false gods, polytheism, worship of many gods. And in those 70 years, those Israelites of Judah, where they were held captive, and what God did in those 70 years was he purged from their hearts any further desire to worship false gods. I mean, you got the point after 70 years. So when they came out of captivity, the the, the last thing they wanted to do was worship false gods. The last thing they wanted to do was worship many gods. They came back with a heart set on worshiping the one true God, the God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Okay, so get yourself into that mindset, right? You understood that. You went to captivity because of straying from that. Okay, I got the picture now. I don't want to go to captivity for 70 years again. We worship one God. Now a man comes along and says he's equal with God. What do you do? Right? What do you do? Because to them, God has no equals. Jesus Jesus's reference to God as his father was something a Jew would not say. Collectively, they would, they would reference God collectively as their father. But individually, to say God was your father, no Jew would dare to do. Because then you would suggest that you are the same nature. That would never happen. They would never dare to say that. But here is a man standing before them with dirty feet in sandals saying, I am equal to God. They want to kill him. Does that make sense now? Like... That suggests polytheism. That's a dangerous thing. Think about it. This could lead to further judgment, possibly by the hands of the Romans, right? The Romans are the ones that have power over them right now, right? We got to shut this guy up because if he starts leading people into polytheistic worship, God can judge us again. I mean, the Romans are right here. They're primed to do it. So don't go too hard on the Jews here. You have to get into their mentality. They're being protective. We worship one God. We worship one God. And you're saying you're God. That's two gods. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what he's saying. Look at verses 19 and 20. So there we see that Jesus is claiming to be equal to God in his person. Here he's going to claim to be equal to God in his works, in the works that he does. Look at verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now, think about this for a second. If, if Jesus didn't mean to insinuate that he was equal with God, right? If he, if he just communicated poorly and their reaction showed something, this is his chance to kind of correct that, isn't it? This would be the place like, oh, wait, no, you, you want to kill me? I see. You totally misunderstood what I said. I, I wasn't saying that I'm, I'm equal with God. You, you got the wrong picture. Wouldn't this be the place you would do that? You would calm the crowd down? Jesus doesn't do that. All right, so if we got verse 18 wrong, verse 19 would be where we would see Jesus correct that. But he doesn't do that. In fact, rather than denying the claim, he affirms it with, the double amen. Remember, most assuredly, amen, amen, truly, truly. John has used that just sparingly throughout this. We've seen it a few times now. But when it is used, it's because Jesus is making an authoritative claim. Truly, truly. You want truth? I'm going to double it. Truly, truly, most assuredly. Every time you see that in John, you should underline that. Most assuredly. It's the strongest possible term. Jesus is affirming his heroes that hearers that what he said was true. I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. So to further defend his Sabbath healing, he ties his activities, what he did to those of the father. Jesus is saying, God the father does those things. And so I do those things. I can't do anything of myself. I only do what I see the Father do. There's an act of compassion and mercy. That's because that, that's what God does. And therefore, that's what I do. I do those things. 
He's explaining that he's not acting independently or in opposition to the Father. His activity imitates the Father, and the two always work together. That is the key. In fact, Jesus can't do anything the Father doesn't do. Think about this. What are the Jews accusing Jesus of, of, of doing here, ultimately? Sinning, right? You broke the Sabbath. That's a sin. They're accusing him of sinning. What is it God cannot do? Sin. And Jesus can't do anything the Father doesn't do. Therefore, Jesus cannot sin. That's what he's saying. So you're thinking a sin has been done here. But listen, I can only do the things the Father does or doesn't do. God cannot sin. And Jesus is saying the same thing. I haven't sinned because I only do what the Father does. They're accusing him of doing something it's, it's not possible for him to do. To see God in action is to see Jesus in action. To see Jesus in action is to see God in action. They are one and the same. That is, that is what you are seeing in terms of the Trinity. Now, it's hard for our minds to get around how, how this works, but this is what Jesus is, is claiming. The works that he does are the very same thing uh, that the Father does, and he can only do what the Father does, and he does them in like manner. I do them exactly the same way. But verse 20 is key. For the Father loves the Son and shows them all things that he himself does. The reason Jesus is able to do everything the Father does is because of the Father's love for the Son. Now, the word love there is not agapeo, the, 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 the love of the will. It's phileo, the love of deep feelings. And you should mark this. It's the only time in the New Testament here that it's used of the Father's love for the Son. It's the only place. Here, the father's phileo, deep-feeling love for his son is the reason he communicates everything. There's full disclosure to him. You're able to do everything. Now listen, God loves us, right? But we don't have absolute full disclosure. Wouldn't you love that, though, by the way? Wouldn't you love to know everything God wants you to do exactly the way he wants you to do it? What a game plan that would be. You guys, actually, we, we do. <laughs> We do have that through his revealed word. He's actually given us everything we're supposed to do. And when we abide in that moral, you know, law that he's given us, you're okay. That's what he wants you to do. But Jesus is far beyond. Jesus is far beyond. He has very specifics, right? Full disclosure here. And I can only do exactly what the father does, Jesus is saying. It's because of the deep-seated love the father has for the son, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says this, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. In Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. The fullness of, of what? Well, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 tells us. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So it pleased God that in Jesus all the fullness of the Godhead would dwell. All that God is, is in Christ. Does that make sense? All that he is is in Christ, everything. And all of that is rooted in this, this love. Note the end of verse 20, though. He will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So Jesus can do works. He has done works. He says he's going to show him, speaking of himself, Jesus, greater works than these that you may marvel. Greater works than what? What are the these? Well, they're the things that the men have seen thus far in Jesus' ministry, right? He's done miracles. He's 
shown examples of his omniscience and his omnipotence. But Jesus is saying there's going to actually be greater things than, than these. Well, what things will those be? Well, that's what follows in the next verses, okay? They're listed in the next two verses. Verse 21, Jesus is going to show that he's equal to God in his power and his sovereignty. His power and his sovereignty. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. You got, okay, this is, this is crazy. Again, you have to kind of get your mind here into the Jewish mentality because all the Bible teaches that only God has the power to give life. Only God has that. But Jesus has just said differently, hasn't he? The Father raises the dead and he gives life to whom he will. The Son also does the same thing. The Son can do the same thing. Again, here's a man standing before these Jewish guys saying, I, I can do the same thing. W would you say that's probably the ultimate power in the universe to give life in that way? That is power. Um, and he's saying, well, he, he has it. In, in 2 Kings chapter 5, I'll just read it to you real quick. In, in 2 Kings chapter 5, um, it's the passage where uh, Naaman, is, he's got leprosy, and he wants to be healed, and he hears of a, of a prophet who can uh, heal him. And so there's a letter that's written, and it goes to the, the king in Israel. Um, and, and this is what the letter says. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I've sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. All right, so the king gets a letter saying, Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm sending someone to you that needs healing. And here's the king's response. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive? Am I God? Only God can do that. Only God is the one that's able to restore and give life. I can't do that. That's ridiculous. When Elijah raised the widow's dead son in 1 Kings chapter 17, it says this, and he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, oh Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. Elijah is God's representative, but he's calling on the power of who? God to restore this life to this person. When Paul is before King Agrippa, um, he's speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. In chapter 26, verse 8, he says, why would it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Why would you think that an incredible thing? God has the power to raise from the dead. Why would that be strange to you? But unlike Elijah or Elisha or anyone else that was a prophet or God's representative in the Old Testament, um, they, they were just acting as representatives. But here, Jesus is, is God himself, and he gives life to whomever he wills, and that's the ultimate power in the universe. That's it. That's the greater works than these. But that also includes life to the spiritually dead as well, which is also what Jesus did um, and that's an example of divine sovereignty. If you look on the other page, or maybe you have to turn a page to John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Remember verse 14, he offers her something. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. What's Jesus offering this woman? We went through that. It's not water, right? Spiritual life. What's going to happen is that you're going to have a fountain of life in you. You're never going to need to find another source of life if you take the life I would give you. And Jesus gives that to whomever he wills. It's an act of power, but also divine sovereignty. He'd give to whoever he, he wants to. 
right? He has the power to do that. He can give life. He can take it away. He offers it to whomever he wills. Wow. That is great power. And Jesus is claiming that equality with God the Father. That would be stunning. That would be absolutely stunning for a Jewish person to be standing in his presence hearing such a thing like that. I can give life. But they're going to see that. Keep that in mind. They're going to actually see that happen. Jesus is going to raise people from the dead, and they'll be forced to make a decision. Unfortunately, they make the wrong one. Look at verse 22. We're going to see Jesus is also claiming to be equal with God in his judgment, equal to God in his judgment. Look what he says. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Yet again, here we go. The Bible tells us, just like the Bible tells us that God's the one that can give life, The Bible tells us that God is the one who judges the whole earth. And every Jew would have known that. Remember Hannah? Hannah wanted a child, and she prayed for a child, and she got her child, Samuel, right? And she does this prayer of thanksgiving in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and this is what she says. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed she understood one thing and one thing only and that was that god is the one who judges the earth he does that this is the old testament they're speaking of god the father david's song of thanksgiving to god for uh, the ark coming to the tabernacle in first chronicles sixteen thirty-three. he says this then the trees of the woods shall rejoice before the lord for he is coming to judge the earth and psalms all over the place psalm 82 8 Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Psalm 94, 2, rise up, O judge of the earth, render punishment to the proud. Psalm 96, 13, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Psalm 98, 9, for he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. You get the picture here, right? The Jews understood one thing, and that was that God judged the world. But look at Jesus said, the Father judges no one. (laughs) What on earth? (laughs) What on earth? All of this scripture is saying that God judges. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, the, the Father judges no one. In fact, he has committed all judgment to the Son. How can that be? Because these are the internal realities of the Trinity at work here. And they're hard for us to grasp. We we cannot understand how how Jesus was in the beginning with God and yet God, right? We 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 can't harmonize that. But he's God and yet separate from God. In Genesis chapter one, in Genesis chapter one, just peek at it real quick. I mean, you probably say it by heart. But in Genesis chapter 1, what's it say? Very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? All right. How about John chapter 1? What's it say in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So in Genesis chapter 1, God creates. In John chapter 1, Jesus creates. In the Old Testament, God is the judge. In the New Testament, Jesus is the judge. Why? 
Because as in verse 19 tells us, the son does whatever the father does in the same way the father does it. Do you get it? He does the same thing. So the Old Testament father is the judge. New Testament, Jesus is the judge because he is God. It's, it's crystal clear. But it, we look at this and go, oh, Jesus has never said, I am God. The Jews got it crystal clear. He is saying he's God because only God judges. And Jesus said, I only do the works of the Father. I do it in the same way that he does it. He's the judge of the whole earth, yet he's given all judgment to his son, and yet he's still God. And we see that in several passages. Boy, you sure got that going through the book of Revelation, right? But Paul, when he speaks to the Greeks of the uh, Areopagus in, in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, he tells us this, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, isn't that interesting? There's some harmony for you. Paul says God is going to judge the whole world. He is. He is the judge. But he's given that to Jesus, the man who he's ordained. See that? Amazing. Paul wrote that Jesus will be, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will be the one to judge. God's judgment will be fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled through the Son who judges. And yet God is still judge. Crazy. Incredible. And since all of these things are true, all of this leads up to the only reasonable response by us to give honor to the Son. And that is in verse 23. Jesus claims to be equal to God in the honor that should be due him because all of those things prior to this verse are true of him. Look at verse 23. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Paul tells us in Romans that we're to honor those whom honor is due, right? To give honor to people who, who honor is due. Um, and we do. We honor and respect those who have positions of prominence and positions of power in this world. We, will, we should, right? We should honor the queen. We should honor the prime minister. We should honor the president. And we do that primarily by showing them uh, obedience and respect. But... How do we honor the creator of the universe? What do we do to honor him? Jesus claims that he's be honored in the exact same way in which God is honored. How do you honor the creator? How do we honor God? We praise him. We worship him with our lives. We trust him. We obey him. We adore him. All these ways that you would honor God because he's the creator of all, the sustainer of all, Jesus says that same exact honor is due him. Listen, if you were a Jewish, uh, a Jewish man in those days, you understood the idea of honoring God. They wouldn't even mention the name Yahweh. They wouldn't even say those words. They, they had such high reverence for him. So for Jesus to come along and say, that kind of honor is due me, is, 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 is mind-blowing. It's staggering, and you can get the idea of why they wanted to kill him. Because he's saying something that flies in the face of everything they've been taught, everything they believe. They want him dead, 
But Jesus is due our honor. We are to honor him. And I think verse 24 rounds up the thoughts here, which is why I went to that, that verse as well. He says this, most assuredly, there it is again, truly, truly, here's a truism. You can take this all the way to the bank. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. What is he saying here? A couple things to point out. He who hears and he who believes. You have to understand how this is written here. He who hears and he who believes. Those are synonyms, right? Synonyms. Hearing and believing are synonyms because to believe you must have heard. So what must you hear? He who hears my word. So you must hear what Jesus says. What must you believe and believe is in him who sent me? You must believe what God says. So you must believe what Jesus says. You must believe what God says. You must believe what both the Father and the Son say because they both speak the same truth. They are one and the same. And believing all of this leads to everlasting life. Now, sadly, there are many who don't believe in both. They believe there's a God. They believe there's a heaven. And they believe there's a God that deserves their reverence and their honor and their loyalty and their respect, their worship and all of those things. But they make Jesus to be something lesser. The Mormons make Jesus to be a half-brother of Lucifer created by a God who's created by another God. Listen, the Bible says here and Jesus says that they, they, they are in death. Right? They have not passed from death to life. They're in death. Believing both truths is what leads to life. That's the truth. But many, many false religions bring Jesus down a notch. He's a created being. He's a good teacher. And I know we've all heard that argument, Lord, liar, lunatic, right? That whole thing. But you just don't have the option to say that he was a good Teacher, you either have the option of Lord, that he was who he said he was, or you have the option of he's a liar, meaning he, he claimed that all while knowing he was just a man, so he's a deceiver. And if he's a deceiver, he's not a good teacher, is he? He's a liar. I wouldn't listen to a thing a liar had to say. Or he's a lunatic. He made those claims but because he really thought they were true, but, he, but they weren't, right? He's a crazy man, which again, does not make him a good moral teacher. You don't have the option out of respect, out of respect for God's word and the respect of your religion. I say, oh yeah, Jesus was a good man. You can't say that. He's either crazy or he's a deceiver, which is a Satan, or he's Lord. That's what you have. I had a friend in the theater um, world who was a theater historian and just a sweet, sweet guy. And our friend, family became really good friends with him and he had a stroke and he fell on his uh what was it left side i think and anyway it basically paralyzed that side because he was there for uh, days before he was found um and so um you know he just he loved being around us and um and you know years went by and i had gotten to the mystery and somehow we had reconnected and and so he he started coming to our church and he would sit in the very very back row and he would listen Sunday in and Sunday out. 
Week after week, he would get the gospel presented to him. He would hear who Jesus was. He knew all those things. And I was always waiting for the opportunity. You know, is he going to say something? He's going to bring something up? Because I had no idea where he, where he rested. Did he believe these things or did he not? And then he had a close friend die, and I think it kind of woke him up. And he came. He said, I just need to talk to you. I want to come meet. So he came and met me in, in the church office. And uh, he was very distraught. You know, he's getting older himself. And, you know, he just wanted me to know what he wanted at his funeral. He wanted someone to know what he wanted at the end. I said, well, it's fine. You know, whatever you want, we'll make that happen. But let me just ask you, you know, where do you think you're going to go? Because you know what he wanted at his funeral? He just wanted balloons. I just want you to make sure you have balloons for me. And balloons, you know, they go up in the sky and everyone can look at the balloons. I thought, okay, you know, that's what you want. You know, man, I, I can get you balloons, but where are you going? Who do you believe Jesus is? Because you've been presented over and over again. He's either God or he's a man. So do you think he really did these things? Do you think not? Who do you think he is? And he finally goes, you know, I can say the words. And I said, what words? What, what, what words are you talking about? He's referring to, you know, yeah, that prayer. You know, you say something, you just say some kind of rote thing, and you're magically a Christian. I can say the words, but I wouldn't believe them. I said, that doesn't mean anything. I don't care what you say. What do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is God, or do you believe he's a man? You know what he said? He goes, probably just a man. But make sure some balloons are at my funeral. We've moved back here. I have no idea where he is. I don't know if he's still around. I don't know if he's died. He wasn't into technology, so there's no way to con- I don't know. But he had his chance. He heard every single week. I talked with him and said, he's God. He goes, no, he's probably just a man. Listen, he's a loving man. He loved our family. He was loving to our kids. But because of what Jesus says here, he has not passed from death into life. He's in death, and he will experience a second death, which is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And that's the truth. That's a hard truth to know, but it's true. And I know we all have people in our lives in the same situation. People who are lovely, who are loving to us, who maybe even say they love God. But if they don't claim the deity of Jesus, they don't believe who he is, that he is God's son, and he alone can save, then they haven't passed from death into life. Judgment awaits them. I pray that today in chapter 5 has, has struck a chord with you that you've seen beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, the words, I am God, did not come out of Jesus' mouth. They didn't need to. He said everything that Jewish audience needed to hear, and it was enough to make them want to kill him. And it gets worse. He's going he's gonna to continue down that path. What's your response today to that, right? What's your response today? Is Jesus God? Was he crazy? Is he just a man? Don't say he was a good teacher. You don't have that option. It's not afforded you. You have the option to say he's Lord or he was a liar. He deceived you. But you have no middle ground there. A choice must be made by every human being on the planet. And it's this choice or this choice. Is he God or is he not? The choice is is left to you. Let me pray. 
God in heaven, I thank you for your word that makes so crystal clear who Jesus is. He indeed is God. And Lord, that is a stunning claim to make. For anyone to make that claim today, we would deem them crazy. If I were to stand here to say I'm God, people would kill me. Rightfully so. Jesus made that claim. But he had all the works to back it up. He does have power over life. He showed us that. Your word is true. God, this is not a fabrication that some make it out to be. This is truth revealed to a dying race of people who don't know the true God. You want us to know you. And I pray, Lord, for any that are here today that have not uh, truly known you, that they have seen a glimpse today of who you really are, that they would see that God the Father, that God the Son, two persons of the Trinity are both God. And because Jesus is God, we must worship him. We must honor him. We must let him reign in our lives. He alone can save. He offers life to all. We simply must accept it. Lord, I pray for those we all know and love that are in our lives who have not chosen to follow you. I pray that they would. I pray that they would see Jesus. Like the testimony shared today by Jeanette, I pray that we would just be living lights for you, that people would just merely need to be in contact with us to see that we live differently, that we live in love with Jesus. Help us to be more and more in love with you every day, God. I pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.